We're in the middle of the story of Moses. Starting in verse 23 in chapter 7. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. This is speaking of Moses. The children of Israel. Remember, Israel was the new name for Jacob, who had gone into Egypt during the time of the famine. So when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Let's pray. Father, as we gaze into your word now, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand it, to believe it, to obey it, to follow after you as we are directed from your scriptures. Lord, all authority has been placed in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that we would recognize that more deeply today and we would be more deeply drawn um, into your plan of salvation through this text. Lord, understanding what it means to be a Christian. We ask for your help. We ask for your grace and your guidance now um, in this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the middle of Stephen's sermon to the high priest and his family. He's been brought before them in kind of a court case. He's been charged with claiming the temple would be destroyed and that he would change the custom of Moses, which are the two sacred cows of ancient Judaism. The temple was the place of God's worship. It was where his presence was. And Moses was the great lawgiver. He was sort of the great prophet of the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith. And so in Stephen's preaching and miracle working, uh, they realize that he is proclaiming Christ, who they, they actually, remember this is the high priest who, who handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate. He actually saw to it that Christ was crucified. So this is sort of another round with these men and family members who had already rejected Christ. And Stephen gives this speech, this sermon, as an answer to their charge. And his sermon is starting to pick up steam. We've gone through sort of the history of Israel a little bit, and his sermon is picking up steam towards the pinnacle, towards the the slam dunk point of his sermon. 
And it doesn't go well for him. He's stoned to death at the end of this sermon. And we will see why over the next week or two. But it's picking up steam to the final point. This is the ultimate point of Stephen's sermon. Those who reject Jesus Christ should have no expectation of having any relationship with God. That's where he's going with his sermon. That's the final point. He uses this history, he uses exhortation, and he uses indictment. The Holy Spirit obviously is working and convicting these men uh, because of their rage. They can't stand this message. But it's that those who reject Jesus should have no expectation of knowing God. And these being the people who handed him over to be crucified are primarily guilty of this sin. So this message, which came first to the Jews, that you cannot reject Jesus Christ and know God, also comes to the rest of us in humanity. This message is the same for all of us. Jesus said during his ministry, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The Father and the Son are one. You cannot reject one without the other. John, the disciple, made this clear in one of the books that he wrote. One of his letters in 1 John 2.23, John writes, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Whoever confesses the Son also has the Father. So over and over through the scriptures, we see that rejecting Jesus Christ is a dead end. There is no relationship with God outside of his Son, Jesus Christ. But along the way in the sermon, so that's where he's landing, but along the way in the sermon, we're picking up these priceless visions of God's redemption in unfolding history. We talked last week about the historic redemptive arc of Scripture. So at every point along the way through Scripture, we see a vision of God's redemption of humanity. And as Kevin pointed out, we can see more clearly now that we are on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. We can see more clearly the full arc of redemption. But all along the way, there are points um, that we can gaze into to understand um, a unique part of his redemption. We saw Abraham in Stephen's speech. He talked about Abraham as the one who got called out of his people and called to go into Canaan. And he was promised a family and he was promised land. We saw Joseph who was sold into slavery, and then he climbed the political ladder in Egypt, and he ended up becoming prime minister, and he stocked all this food, and he was able to provide food for the nearby nations during a period of famine. And then his brothers came. This is years later, decades later. His brothers came to look for food, and then they recognized Joseph finally after he revealed himself. So their own brother had gone ahead of them to preserve their lives. And that's how they settled in Egypt. And then we're also now into Moses. And so there are characters in between that are important, but Stephen chooses to land on these three. And the reason is he devotes a huge chunk of his sermon to this character Moses. And rightly so, because this is the character who the Jews were afraid Christianity was going to change. Christianity was going to alter and mess up the sacredness of who Moses was. And so Stephen devotes a huge portion of his words to defending the compatibility of Christianity with that of the Old Testament story. That they are, they're not in competition. They are not one against the other. They are not one superseding the other. But that Christianity is a perfect outflow. It is the logical outflow of the Old Covenant and of the Older Testament. And so he addresses a large portion of his sermon to this very topic. Now, the reason why they're so afraid of this Moses being changed is because Moses 
is who God used to lead his largest scale and most famous miracle, I would argue, in the entire New Testament, or the, sorry, the entire Bible. Even in the New Testament, I don't think we see a physical miracle to the scale that we saw in the Exodus. The Exodus is when God's people, the Hebrews, were led out of slavery, a million people, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts and they walk through it. We read that in Psalm 136. And then the sea swallows up the Egyptian army as they pursued them. This is an incredible scale of miraculous workings. To coordinate that is, is only possible if you are God. And Moses is the one who led this famous and what I would call the flagship miracle of the Bible. This one miracle is repeated by God throughout the entire Old Testament. It's even repeated in the New Testament. This one miracle of the Exodus it reminds Israel who they are and how they got there. And I just want to show you a couple examples of this because otherwise we won't understand why this is so important to the Jews even in Jesus' time. The story was written for, or repeated for multiple reasons. One of them is to remind Israel how they ought to treat other people. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, he talks about sojourners. God talks about sojourners to his people. And he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And he also commands them to treat uh, servants and sojourners with kindness because they were. Also, to remember the exodus is to give them courage. A lot of what Israel did once they were free was actually to conquer other lands. And to go against armies that they should have lost to. And God says, you ought to have courage. In Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 1. When you go to war against your enemies, see horses and chariots of an army larger than your own. You shall not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? It also motivates obedience. Leviticus 25 gives us a picture of that. If you don't find these quickly, that's okay. I'd like you to write them down because this is, how, this is how God instructed his people. It's how he reminded them how to live. He uses this story of redemption and salvation in order to lead them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. These are all motivations for the laws that he kept. So he reminds Israel over and over and over again of his work of salvation. It's similar for us in the New Testament. Ephesians 4.22 says something very similar. He says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. In 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul even gives his testimony. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, but God, because of his mercy, redeemed me. And so there's this notion in the Old Testament and the New Testament that in order to walk with God, in order to know how to live according to his ways, we need to keep a keen memory of where we came from and how we got there. There's a, there's a need for reflection. There's a need for memory of where we came from. And this begins with the story of the Exodus. It begins with Israel in slavery to the Egyptians. 
And so this text before us in Acts chapter 7 is to reflect on what is salvation? What is salvation? Because what is before us is the comparison. It's, this text sets apart divine salvation from secular freedom. Because as Christians, we cannot live in the true new covenant unless we really understand what divine salvation is and how it differs from mere secular freedom. And it's why our, it's why our faith is supernatural in and of itself. It's not because of the greatness of our faith, but because of the divine origin of our salvation. So looking at how this plan unfolds, we see in the first part of our text, we see the right man, but the wrong plan. We see the right man, but the wrong plan. This is verses 23 to 29. We learned that Moses grew up among the Egyptians. He was put in a basket because he was born in a time of violence against children. So his parents put him in a basket and sent him down the river so that he would not be discovered as part of their home. And Pharaoh's daughter picks him up and raises him in Pharaoh's house. So he grew up as an Egyptian. And in Acts 7.22, it tells us that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in words and deeds. So he was a powerful guy. Probably big, strong, powerful, successful. Okay, he, w- he had managed as a circumcised Hebrew to do well in the house of Pharaoh among these pagans. And so Moses was probably very confident in himself and in his work. He was well-educated in the comforts of Egypt. And in verse 23, it says, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he he defended the oppressed man. And so this is his plan. He He leaves the palace. He leaves the comforts of the Egyptian culture. He goes down to his people. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that this was an act of faith on his part because he was enjoying the comforts of of Egypt at the time. And, And Hebrews tells us that Moses chose to identify with the reproach, which means the shame of his people who were in slavery. And so this was in the first part, an act of faith, by Moses. It's a, it's a great thing. He chooses, he chooses to identify with his brothers, with the children of Israel. And he knew that he was a descendant from them. His intentions were good. His in, intentions actually were the very same as God's. God had intended to save the Hebrews out of the hands of the Egyptians. Moses' plan was the exact same. That was Moses' plan. So it's the right man, but he goes about it in the wrong way. He, he kills the Egyptian who was mistreating one of the Hebrews. So it's like kind of instant justice. He, he kills the man. And our text tells us that he presumed that his people would understand what he was doing. He presumed that this would be the spark that led to the fire, that led to the explosion, that led to the revolution. This would be the moment that Israel would respond and join him and they would march out of there in might, presumably, because Moses was a strong guy. He thought, I'm going to kill this one person. I'm going to set the example, and then everyone's going to follow me out of here. It says that he thought his brothers would understand what God, that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But what happened? They did not understand. Why? 
Because the efforts of one man will always produce the benefits of what one man can deliver. Did you hear that? The efforts of one man acting alone will always give you the benefits of what that one man can produce. So Moses inflicted justice on this Egyptian without due trial, so I would say probably not justice, but essentially he thought, I'm going to lead this salvation out of Egypt. And it doesn't produce anything. His brothers did not understand it as in any way helpful. And in fact, Exodus 2.15 tells us that Pharaoh found out about it and Moses became afraid and he fled. So here's Moses thinking that he's the savior, that he's going to lead them out, he's going to bring them salvation. And he ends up in the wilderness for 40 years after his attempt. Now, if you're a guy who's well-educated, you're strong, you're well-spoken, he ends up, not only, not only has he been, has he left the palace, he, he's left his sort of adopted family, he's left the comforts and riches of Egypt and the palace, he's now also been rejected by his own people. Remember, he goes down to talk to the men who are quarreling the next day, and he says, oh, I'm going to, so now I'm going to help mediate these arguments too. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw off your oppressor and I'm going to help you walk through the difficulties of life. And what do they say to him? Are you going to kill me like you killed that guy? In, in other words, are you, is, that, is this your plan, Moses? Are you just going to kill anybody who's stepping out of line? And they say to him, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who are you? You know, kind of pretty boy from the palace coming down here. You're going to, be, you're going to save us because you're better than us? There's absolutely no traction here in Moses' plan for salvation for his people. And he flees and he goes into the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Imagine the shock of humility and depression that Moses would be in at this point. He sees his people living in oppression. He's 40 years old, so he's seen it for decades. And he says, I'm going to get them out of there. I know God has promised to free us from this slavery. And it falls apart. It totally collapses. And so he spends 40 years in the wilderness. He's now 80 years old when most of us consider the prime of life to have passed. Now is the moment where God is going to truly use him. His, his, his pride has been stripped away. His self-determination has been stripped away. He's the same man, but coming from a totally different place. And this is where God's real plan for salvation begins from a totally different place. What happens in the wilderness? He's hanging around in the wilderness and an angel appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush. This is that famous story of the, the, flaming, the flaming bush, the Lord speaking to Moses from a bush which is on fire, but it, it's not consuming it and the bush is not burning away. And this draws Moses' attention. He goes to look and he says, what is this anomaly that I'm seeing? And, the, and, and then says that the Lord spoke from that place. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And so Moses goes from thinking back on the plan that God had promised to his forefathers to hearing from the God who made those promises. God speaks to him directly. Moses is not just recalling the stories from his history now. Now the God of that history is speaking to him directly. I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then what does Moses do? He trembled. Because now he's speaking to the very God that he has in his heart known to be true. This is where we're introduced to sacred salvation. 
sacred salvation. For deliverance to occur for human beings, it must be divine. It must be from God. It must be heaven sent for salvation to be true and deliverance to be genuine. God speaks to Moses with this key phrase. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Here's that, here's that phrase. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. So when Moses, when he was 40, the reason why he went down to visit his kinsmen, Exodus tells us, is that he saw the sufferings of his kinsmen. It's the same phrase that we see here where God says, I have seen the affliction of my people. Now, if you want somebody to take notice of your condition, who would you rather that be? Somebody who's mighty in word and deed or God himself? Because when God speaks up and says, I have taken notice of them, you know help is on the way. When God takes notice of your affliction, help is on the way. When a buddy of yours takes notice of your affliction, he or she may be able to help, but only God offers divine and true deliverance, sacred salvation. This is the God of the promise. He gives his name. He first identifies himself. He gives the name as a reference for Moses to know who he is, the one from whom we are to expect salvation. He's made these promises to his forefathers. He's saying, I am the God who made those promises, which means I am the God that you can expect to carry those promises through, to give you the salvation that you've been waiting for. Now, later on, Moses ends up saying, okay, so I'm going to go to Egypt. Who should I say sent me? God has a different name for who he's going to tell the Egyptians. Tell them I am sent you, which means I am that I am. I am self-existent. I am self-referential. I am God who is God. But to God's covenant people, he identifies himself as the promise giver, as the promise maker, as the promise keeper. I am the one you can trust. I am the one who spoke to your forefathers. I am with you. I care for you. I am watching out for you. But when he goes to proclaim his identity to the Egyptians, he says, Egyptians, you ought to know this is the God of gods. There is no other besides him. He is that he is. He is self-referential. And so he gives his name. And then he tells him to take his shoes off, which is a famous, this famous command unique in scriptures. It doesn't happen very often. It does happen another time with Joshua before he conquers Jericho. But here is the first time it's commanded in scripture. And I ha you have to ask, why is the ground sacred right here? Because Moses wasn't commanded when he received the Ten Commandments to take off his shoes. Abraham wasn't told to take off his shoes when he first received God's promise. So what makes this ground sacred? Why is this moment, why is this time and place sacred in the eyes of God? I believe it's because of the declaration that he's about to make. I've been talking and I've been making the case that the exodus from Egypt is the greatest miracle. It is the greatest act that God ever does in the old covenant to save people. It is the flagship redemption act. So when God declares his intention to save the people from Egypt, there is a sacredness 
to what he's about to do. There is a sacred and divine holiness about his plan to redeem his people. He says, I have come down to rescue them. There's also a sense of incarnational reality to this holiness. That because God is not just remaining in heaven as distant from his people, we have a God who claims to come down onto the earth he created in order to carry out his redemption. Making the very place where we stand holy because he is there to carry out this redemption. See what the difference is between secular freedom and divine redemption? When it's divine, God comes down and it is sacred, it is holy, it is precious, it is set apart, it is his plan. It's true redemption. I have come down to rescue them. God's salvation does not share a stage, it does not even share a spectrum with the works of man that pursue liberty. They're not on the same spectrum. Like, the liberty that Moses was trying to enact in Egypt is not on the same spectrum as God's redemption. It's not as if that was at the low end and then working up the scale, we have God at the other end. There was a total chasm between anything that humans can do to bring about redemption and what God does to bring about freedom. When God saves people, he makes sure that the world knows that it was him who saved them not themselves. He tells them over and over in the Old Testament, uh, the people will know that I brought you out of Egypt. So even his act of redemption for Israel is a signal to the rest of the world. This is who I am and this is what I do. I bring redemption. Their freedom can only be attributed to this God who had promised it. And what's the purpose of it? He says, I have come down, I'm going to redeem them, and I'm going to send you to do it. What is the outcome of divine redemption? It's true worship. It's true worship, and we've seen this in the promise to Abraham. Back in Acts chapter 7, verse 7, the promise that comes to Abraham includes this. I will judge the nation that they serve, meaning the nation that Israel serves. I will judge that nation... Sorry, I lost my place. I will judge that nation that they serve. And after that, they shall come out. In other words, after the Exodus, they will come out and they will what? Worship me in this place. The purpose of God's redemption is to bring about true worship unto himself. So there are two versions of deliverance that are put on display for us in this text. It's in order to contrast the true and right relationship that God brings about through his deliverance and the disaster that comes about when man tries to execute his deliverance. When man goes about trying to free man in some way, it leads to confusion and tyranny and violence. When God redeems a people, it ends in true worship. The whole purpose of bringing Israel back to the promised land was so that they would worship him there that they would worship him. So this act of redemption, this act of the exodus that God had set apart Moses to lead, it becomes the hallmark of a relationship with God. It's what God, it's how God primarily identifies with his people. 
It's the primary way that he interacts with his covenant people. The outcome of salvation, this is what this tells us, the outcome of salvation is not human autonomy. What is autonomy? It means being a law to yourself. So true human salvation is not characterized by man finally getting to rule over himself. True salvation is not liberation unto yourself. True salvation leads you to a right submission to God. True human freedom can only be expressed and is only real under the lordship of God. True human freedom is a right and obedient relationship to God. That's where we are happy. That's where we are protected. That's where we are full. That's where we are satisfied. That's where humanity thrives, is under God. And so any salvation that frees us away from obedience to God is a counterfeit freedom. So when you look at Christianity, and and some people Some people treat Christianity as if it's now a reason why they can sin because, well, God has forgiven me, so now I'm free to do whatever I want. That's not true salvation. It's not true salvation because salvation frees us to a place of right worship to God. After I bring them out of Egypt, I will bring them to worship me in this place. Another translation says, will come out and serve me in this place. So what's the, what, why is he saying this to the Jewish leaders, to the high priest? It's because the high priest and his family were very keen on religious devotion. They loved the temple. They loved the law of Moses and the customs. They were very religiously devoted. So why does Stephen tell these two stories? about Moses' first attempt to free them and God's message to Moses about true redemption. It's because religious devotion is completely meaningless without a vital and true relationship to the Redeemer. If we do not relate to God as our Redeemer, as the one who rescued us, that's the actual word God used. I have come down to rescue them If we do not relate to God as the one who rescued us, we do not have a relationship with him at all. That's the primary way that we relate to God. And every other way we relate to him is a derivative or is a result of looking at him as our redeemer. What's the posture of somebody who relates to God for the first time? God says, I heard their groanings, and I've taken notice. It's one who groans under the burden of sin. It's one who groans under the weight of judgment. It's one who groans and agonizes over the burden of brokenness. And God takes notice, and he rescues those who call out to him. It will come to pass in these last days that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, philosophically, we don't, we're not in our smoking jackets, you know, lounging in the library with a cigar saying, Hey God, would you join me in here? It's nice. I'd like some company. When we call out to God, we are in rags and we are poor and we are broken and we are needy and we are burdened and we are lost. 
Those are who God came to save in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. So religious devotion, which means practicing all of the things that you think are important to Christianity or to your faith, those are not the primary ways that we relate to God. The high priest was religiously devoted, but he had no relationship to God as his redeemer because they thought they did, they did not need redemption. They thought that if they followed Moses' law, that God would consider them righteous, that God would accept them on the basis of their good works. And so this is why he's saying to them, you, you cannot come to God unless you see him as a redeemer. Friends, becoming a Christian is not a matter of adopting new ideas or habits or thought patterns or schedules. That's not what makes you a Christian, is changing what you do on a Sunday morning or changing the music that you listen to or going on a missions trip or giving money to the church. None of those things make you a Christian. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it very clearly. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like secular freedom? That sounds like divine redemption. You were dead in your sin before God saved you. You did not invite God out of a place of intellectual enlightenment. You did not hear some good ideas about God and think, oh, I'd like to adopt him into my lifestyle. No, I think faith in God might be a, a good addition to my uh, bookshelf. We were dead. In the same way that the children of Israel were groaning and they were enslaved. I mean, they, there was nothing that they could do. They were totally in bondage until God came down to Moses and said, I will rescue them. I will do it. And what did he do? He did it. Was he successful? Yes. Did he bring his people to the promised land? Yes. Did they worship him there? Yes. Now they still rebelled, which is why the new covenant was necessary. God made an even better covenant where he actually came to live in us. Instead of going into a temple where God's presence was, God said, I'm going to make you the temple and I'm going to come and live inside you. There is no other redemption narrative in the world that speaks of a God coming down out of his place of glory to identify with his people. Moses chose the reproach of his people. He chose to leave behind the riches of Egypt to go down to his people. How much more did this take place in Christ? Philippians chapter 2 of whom it says, although he was God, although he was equal with God, he did not think of that as a thing to be held on to, but he let it go and he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. This is how redemption took place for us. 
God came down to be our rescue. He left his home in heaven in Jesus Christ to identify with his people and to lead them in an exodus from sin. So true worship, it has to begin with God and his primary identity to us as our rescuer. So my friends, please do not look to your devotion to the church, your Bible reading plan, listening to CHRI, your financial giving, or any other form of religion as your confidence, as your identity in Christ. All of these things are just derivative. They are just a result of the reality that we have been redeemed. Romans chapter 5 says, At the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died to save the ungodly. That's the difference between secular freedom and divine salvation. Divine salvation gives us a new nature. Peter tells us in one of his books that by his precious and great promises, we can become partakers in the divine nature. This is not one of the great world religions. This is not one of the options for religious devotion in the world. This is the reality where God comes and lives inside and among his people and redeems them as a body and will one day bring us into paradise with him. No true relationship with God exists that does not begin with this one fact that we need deliverance from sin and we are powerless to do it ourselves. To walk with Christ is to have been delivered from your sin and raised to new life and holding to the promise of eternal life hereafter. 